One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The comedian on this week's show had a rough year. I had a hard time in lockdown. I really did. In quarantine, it was hard. It was really, really hard. Because it, it made a liar out of me. It did. Because I've always said, my entire life, if I just had the time. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was my guest on today's show, Josh Johnson, from his debut stand-up special, Hashtag. For the past four years, Josh has been a writer on The Daily Show. Before that, he wrote for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. But in March of 2020, he was about to get his first real big break, his own hour-long special on Comedy Central. The rest is, well, you know. He had to wait a full year before he could tape the special, throwing out all of his old material and starting from scratch to create an hour that is even stronger and deeper. And in the meantime, he produced a full-on mixtape album with both comedy and music called Elusive. So maybe this past year wasn't so bad for Josh after all. So with The Daily Show returning to the air this week and Hashtag now available to stream on Paramount+, Plus, I thought now would be the perfect time to chat with him about all of it. Here's me with Josh Johnson. So yeah, welcome. Uh, thanks for being on the show. I uh, I want to start with uh, with your special hashtag, um, and specifically, I wanted to ask you about the the end of it, um, where you kind of get a little emotional thanking everybody for for kind of finally making it happen. Because um, I know it was it was delayed due to the pandemic and everything. Um, so can you talk about that moment uh, actually at the end of your special and and what what it meant to you to finally be able to to make it happen? Yeah, I mean, I had always wanted a special since I was a little kid. So I we grew up watching Comedy Central specials specifically. And I remember the first one that I saw where I really digested what I was watching was uh, Christopher Titus's Comedy Central special, uh, Norman Rockwell is Bleeding. And ever since then, I was like, man, like that's because to me in my mind, that was like the pinnacle. Like you, you have all these thoughts, you have all these ideas, you have all these feelings and you bring them, present them to an audience in this form that we've come to accept as like the, the pinnacle form of comedy too. So then an hour versus another hour, all that stuff. And so when I initially got the call, I was super excited and, you know, feeling all the feelings and everything. And then I got nervous because I was like, is this going to be good enough? Like, is this, is this other stuff funny enough and everything? And then, uh, we, we got a date and that date felt like at least at the time, cause you gotta go back to like early 2020, we were just living, you know, like we had plans, <laughs> yeah. everybody was chilling. And so even as some, some fear around the pandemic started to emerge and even as the virus started to spread in other places. So we're talking like when it was in Seattle and all that other stuff and Seattle, like remember when Seattle was the epicenter at like the very beginning, like I don't even feel like it had really hit New York yet. Like there was one lady that went to the hospital with a cough. Like we hadn't really... <laughs> It, it like in, embrace what an impact it might have on the city. Yeah, and definitely so, not. 
I still had this early 2020 date. So I was like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll at least like, you know, maybe this thing will be contained and then um, I can just go and tape and it'll all be good. And even as places start locking down, I was like, oh, like, should we do this? Like, even if I can <laughs> skate by, like, do we, because cause you you have to also contextualize the fact that like testing wasn't even really a thing yet. No, like, it was everyone was just kind of making it up as we went along. Yeah. And then there were people that were like, oh, that sounds like what I had six months ago or, you know, whatever the thing was. So then when we officially got postponed and Chicago called for a lockdown and then there was like a nationwide lockdown and all that stuff, that was when I was like, wow, this is like things are really it didn't it didn't feel I wasn't even thinking about my special for a little bit right there. Like I did initially when they told us like, hey, the date's not because we had sold tickets. And I think we had sold out at least one of the shows already. Was that in March or was that when, when was it supposed to tape? It was supposed to tape March of 2020. And so, so we had, yeah, I think it was March, like the end of March or something. And then I, for, you know, a day or two, I was thinking about the special cause I was like, oh man, this is, when are we going to get another date? Like, and then I stopped thinking about anything except not dying. Like yeah. that, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> the priorities shift a little bit. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, we, we had to move some dates around and there, there kept being these moments where we thought, it's such a it's such a snapshot of our thinking at the time too because then a couple months later when cases were like slowly going down and nobody really knew why um and it you know it seemed to be just cuz lockdown was working like that's why but then we were also like could it just be going away yeah, I maybe don't know. maybe this isn't such a big deal after all yeah and then then i i think i got another date and and then obviously that couldn't happen and so it, it became this thing where as much of a limbo as it was that we were in of whether or not it was going to be able to happen in 2020, it, it did mean a lot to me that they kept, that Comedy Central being they, kept that goodwill with me of like staying in communication, answering questions if I had any, like just really, really uh, putting me at ease in a way that they didn't like have to if they didn't want to yeah i mean like they were clearly dealing with all their own stuff they're in the middle of like a merger and you know all this stuff and the pandemic and so for them to still be thinking about me meant a lot and that's why i felt like it was so important to give uh, you know those people involved a, a shout out like ryan moran and, and gabby and just the the people who were like honestly championing me from the beginning like even when i just had like a couple little youtube videos or something I wondered, you know, like, were you worried at any point that your your this big opportunity that you had to do your first hour special was somehow not going to happen because, like, the world was going to end or something? I mean, what were what were you <laughs> were yeah, you worried I mean, I, that it, that it might never happen? I, I do feel like if the world ended, I would have much bigger problems. Right? <laughs> like now, now I gotta learn how to fight. That's a good point. Like, That's a good point. <laughs> it's kind of like when people are like, "What if your stock portfolio goes to zero? It's like. Well, if it goes to zero, clearly the country collapsed. Yeah, like, bigger problems. But uh, but no, I, I, I feel you because I did have those thoughts once in a while. I'd be like, if things really start falling apart, you know, I don't know if my special is going to yeah. be on that many people's mind but me. So that's why whenever whenever they fought to make sure that I knew whatever I whatever I could know and the fact that they were excited about it throughout, and then the fact that we finally got to do it is like, they all just, I mean, they're like my day ones to begin with, but still that was like one of the biggest, 
one of the biggest moves, I guess, that anybody's ever made for me in that sense. Cause it, you know, it, it was enough to get it. And, and a part of getting it that is, that is great and beautiful and something I was going to take with me no matter what happened in the world is that for you to get the offer means somebody believes in you. And it's like, if somebody believes in you, then you got something going on. So, you know, there, there was a little bit of like reassurance just by getting the offer that, that is like, oh, okay, they see me and they see me working and, you know, they know that people like my stuff. And, and so that was just such a, a boost to the, to the confidence to begin with that, like, you know, everything was out of everybody's control. So the fact that we still came together to do it, I think speaks volumes about the quality of people that work there and how much they care about putting quality content out there. Like that's not to hype myself up, but that's just, that's just kind of how I feel about it is like, if you believe in something and you stick with it, then that's huge. Mm -hmm. How much time ended up actually going by between when you were supposed to shoot it and when you actually shot it? Like a year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy to think about, right? I mean, because and I, I know that the material changed over that time because there's stuff about the pandemic in the special. Um, so how different was that hour that you had ready to go in March compared to what you ended up putting up, uh, you know, a year later? I mean, it's a different hour. Like, it's just, it's, I don't think that there's any jokes from what I planned on doing. Oh, really? It's like totally different. Yeah, yeah. It's, That's it's, wild. Because it, it, it also felt like not just okay, you have to address it because it's the elephant in the room. Because honestly, you know, we're doing, we're doing the taping and everybody is masked. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, you can't we, ignore it. Yeah. It, it, that'd be crazy to go up there and like, I just bought a computer recently. It's like, all right, geez, this guy's out of his mind. But, but I also felt like contextually to bring all of that stuff together because I don't harp on it. I'm just like giving you my, my assessment of what's going on and how I felt while it was happening. And if anything, it's more about my relationship to, to social and technology than it is the pandemic, you know, like the pandemic just, just put it at the forefront because I really had to face it as opposed to the special being about the pandemic. But then I found that those two relationships, like the thing that we all went through and the thing that I went through ended up taking up so much of the core of what I wanted to talk about that it ended up being this new hour in and of itself. My life just became screens, nonstop. It was either my phone or my computer or my TV, nonstop. I was either on the internet or I was watching something and it got to be a lot. It got to the point where I knew I needed to take a break, you know? So I decided to do it. I put, I put everything down, I turned everything off and I just sat in my room and I would just sit and I would think just try to be alone with myself in a quiet place, like suss myself out, get to know what I'm really about in here. And that was a terrible mistake. (laughs) It was, it was a terrible, it was one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. First of all, I'm just sitting thinking. I'm not thinking after reading. I'm just thinking raw ass thoughts. These aren't good thoughts. These are just things I normally be too distracted by TV to think. And they were real dumb. And that was heartbreaking. It was. I always thought if I just sat and thought, I'd come up with a theory or something. And I was just sitting there like, oh my God, all of these things are dumb. Am I dumb? Is this how dumb people find out? 
what is your relationship with technology like after the after the year and, and a half of of this? I like to think it's healthier, but I also there are some things about ourselves that we don't get to decide. So you would actually have to ask my family and friends <laughs> yeah. what it is. It's hard to see yourself. To me. Yeah. And it also depends on what you want from it. Like I found that my intentions have changed. So whereas sometimes people are posting and engaging with people to get more followers and it's like, I think that because I also worked on Elusive in 2020, it was like, oh, now I'm more, and I'm not saying this to try to make myself sound cool or anything. I very much, <laughs> I very much still care what people think of me. But um, I, I got to this point where some of the things I was making, I had already made them. So it's about just sharing what I already made. There's like, you're either going to like it or you're not because there's no way to change it now. So whatever criticism or, or, or praise comes by way of sharing this with people is going to come like, and, and so I think that that also changed my intentions towards using social at all. And I also like, I really try to not get into any, any like beef with anybody or, or like jump in, like if people are piling on or something, it's like, it depends on what it is. Like if it, if it's something where it's like social, where it truly affects people's lives and it's the government, then like, yeah, I'll chime in with like, why do we have to do this? But if a person did a dumb thing, it's like, why do you have to? Yeah, I don't, you don't need to have an opinion on everything. Yeah, yeah. I like to leave that stuff alone because it also doesn't, I think that the thing we're finally, finally maybe realizing about stuff like that is that in a person's mind, they see themselves as one person and the weight of one person and the, and the weight and criticism, maybe even the attack of one person, a person can probably deal with, even if they're a sensitive person. But when it comes to online, you're one ounce of like, you know, a thousand pounds. So it's like, I know that you think you just did your little dig on this person and maybe they saw it or maybe they didn't and it bothered you so you tweeted whatever or you DM'd whatever. But you have to understand if it if they're like sort of the quote unquote the donkey of the day, then they're getting that from all angles. And who knows how long they're getting it. It's like I just don't necessarily want to be part of that energy. And that's that's also something that I was trying to lightly convey in the special. So you mentioned Elusive, which is your mixtape album, which you also released uh, this year along with the special. And it's a really unique project, I think, because it has a lot of stand-up bits in it, but also music. But the music's not comedy songs. You know, it's not like uh, what Bo Burnham did or something. So it's a really unique project. So why did that appeal to you to kind of mix comedy with really more sincere music? Yeah, I mean, I think that for the most part, it was the fact... I... Okay. It's... And I'm not... <sighs> I'm not saying this in in a way that's to sound um, like, okay, the best way I can say it is I really thought I might die last year. Like, like I didn't even get COVID, but like, I just, when things were going on around me, I was like, anytime there's even a stomach flu going, I'm usually the third one to drop, you know? Yeah. So like, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I have the best immune system. I'm working <laughs> on it. But when I saw the numbers and I saw stuff happening, I was like, yo, this might, this might be it for me. And obviously I was being careful and I really, especially at the height of it, I was only going out every two weeks to get groceries. Like I was doing all the stuff that like would have, would have made Fauci smile, but yeah. <laughs> I still was like, Hey, you never know. 
And so I had always, always wanted to write music, wanted to produce music. And this project was a way to do that with people that I really respected. And I reached out to Mike Realm actually pretty early in the year compared to when it came out. Like, I think I reached out to Mike by... April or May of 2020, and then I started having conversation with Groovebox in Chicago, and I just think he's really talented, and we work really well together, and then from there, like, uh, Frankie Tsunami hopped on and did a remix of his original song for the mixtape and stuff, and I just, it was a way to, like, just do something I wanted to do and there was no excuses and I had nothing but time and I like I and and I think that some people some people see what I came out of last year with and and I don't want to give the wrong impression that I'm one of those like toxic positivity people of like just <laughs> grind yeah. just like grind whatever it takes just like thank god it's monday wake up and grind it's like I'm not like that at all um it's just that these were the same things that soothed me that ended up being things I could share with other people because because the music and the, uh, you know, I'm actually working on my next mixtape now. And the music for me is such a release because with comedy, I'm still very like, I'm still very intentional with all of my jokes. And I'm still very like adamant about taking stock of how each joke went per set. So it's like very, there are very few shows where I am forgetting that it's my job. It's like, it's my job to make people laugh. It's my job, at least in my opinion, to like convey these points creatively and give them something that they haven't heard before. And so it's not that the work makes me bummed out. It's not that the work makes me like, ugh, you know, but at the same time, it is a little bit of work. So I have to pay attention, take a little bit more seriously. Whereas the music, especially because in Elusive, I'm not singing at all. I could just have fun. I could just be like, wow, you sound dope. Like, let's do this <laughs> thing. And then let's add a little bit of this or let's make the chorus longer. And that was just fun. And so that's that's where that came from. I like the way you talk to me. Where your head touch my face when you lay on me. Keep my thoughts on you, baby, almost steadily. You're about the only thing that means a thing to me. Don't care where I've been or where I'm going. I don't care about your past here, baby, it's not important. Both us got our doubts to figure out, but in the morning. Both us got our doubts, we'll figure them out in the morning. All I know is I can wake up every time I know your bed is cold. So I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of your career and how you got into this. Um, when did you start doing comedy and, and what was it, what was sort of the scene like? I think it was in Chicago, right? Where you, when you started? Yeah. Yeah. I started in Chicago. Yeah. It was like 2012, which is wild because it's like the first time that I had been on a plane. So I, I yeah, I took my first flight to get to Chicago and from, uh, from, from Louisiana. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I don't even remember how I, so my buddy Jacob Bates like picked me up from the airport when picking up from the airport, we're at, we're at like the last stage of picking up from the airport being <laughs> yeah. a thing. And he was kind enough to meet me at the airport and guide me because I had never taken a train like the train in Chicago before. And like just all that guided stuff that it was so much easier to get back with his. And I also, you know, I didn't have any money. So then a cab was like out. 
like I, like I was going to be able to take a cab from the airport to his place. So I How did you even I, come up with the idea to go to Chicago and, and try comedy, though? So when I was in college, I had a professor, uh, Emily Hugator, that was talking about her time in Chicago. And she, you know, she's an actress and everything and also a professor. And she... We, we took a class with her that was just it was essentially the the business of entertainment and she was talking about how she just took us on a deeper level than we had ever thought about engaging in entertainment because at the time I was just a design major like I knew I liked doing comedy but I was majoring in lighting design for plays and Broadway stuff like that but when she sat us down she was like you need to think about where you live for work you need to think about how you're taxed and if you need to be like an S corp or like she, she was just going into like all this deep. So it was like blowing our like eight, you know, <laughs> 19 year old minds. We were just like, Oh wow. And so then and when it came time, it just felt like the right market because it felt like New York or LA would just sort of eat me alive at that point. Like I'm, I'm this like wide eyed kid from Louisiana. It's like, I need some, I needed some of that Midwest, uh, busy city to adjust to the New York busy life. And, and so that, that was the main reasoning was because you know, she point out that Chicago is the only secondary market in the country where you can really learn how to be this like big fish in a little pond, but the pond's not that little, you know? And, and if you, if, and this isn't necessarily something she told me, but something we discussed is that like, if you blow up in Chicago, you at least know you're good enough to move to New York or LA. And, and so that, that was like the main reasoning that I ended up choosing Chicago and ever since then, it's like, I'm, I'm very glad I made that decision because there's a part of me and maybe it's hubris, but there's a part of me that is like, oh, I would have been fine no matter where I went. I'm funny. <laughs> yeah. I can, you know, whatever. But there, there's a true, um, at least while I was there, I can't speak to all time, but there's, there's a true nurturing sense in Chicago. Like a lot of people had a hand in shaping how I did comedy and, and mentored me and, and really brought me along in a way that they didn't have to, it was of no benefit to them. And I think I wouldn't have got as much of that in obviously the first tier markets, but I also probably wouldn't have got as much of that in some of the more tertiary, like random cities where people really don't know how to do Like I was at least around people who had been on TV a couple times or around people who had the chops to like be top comic, but they have kids and they like living in Chicago. So they chose to stay where they were, but they could have been, you know, seller comics in New York, whatever. And, and so I was learning both how to be happy because the comics in Chicago that I was around were some really great, happy people and happy with their choices and, and all the decisions that they were making, but also just around really talented people that were going to let you try and fail and get better. And, you know, no one really holds it against you that you used to be bad when you live there. <laughs> was there a moment where you had to decide whether to go to LA or New York? Yeah. I, and how did you make that decision? So I remember being at a crossroads because I got past at just about every club in Chicago. So I was working at Trader Joe's and I was making, you know, money to live at Trader Joe's and then my spot pay was good extra money, but I, I could tell that it was never gonna be like a full time job in Chicago yeah, to be a comedian. It's like, yeah. 
Yeah, because because also, you know, you have to factor in that the more seasoned guys are already featuring. So they're already in this great place where they're like killing the game and, you know, just just not necessarily needing to move, but not really going anywhere either. And so it was like, okay, spot pay isn't going to isn't going to like be enough money to save up or anything. And so then I was talking with my manager at the time about New York and LA and I, you know, the way that he had laid it out for me was like, if you want to get better at comedy in general, at standup, you're going to need to move to New York. But if you want to get better at comedy in a sense of like your acting, your sketch writing, your, like all that other stuff, your improv, then you need to move to LA. And, uh, you know, I have such a love and passion for stand-up, and that's essentially what, like, brought me to the dance, in a sense. So, you know, I chose stand-up, I chose New York, and I still, you know, there's some confirmation bias in there, but I, I definitely feel like I chose correctly for me because, you know, I moved, I moved to New York, and then very quickly I got, like, Comedy Central comics to watch. And then not too long after that, I wrote it Tonight Show, and then not too long after that, I was, like, doing you know, a couple like pilots. And then not too long after that, I was a daily show. So it's like things have like, I've been very blessed that things seem to happen every year. And not that I'm not working towards those things to happen, but you can work your whole life for a thing and not have it come true. And so I'm, I'm very, very blessed. And I, and I don't take for granted all the people believing in me and taking chances on me to give me those chances. Coming up. Josh talks about moving to New York, joining The Tonight Show, and how he felt when he saw Jimmy Fallon playfully tussle Donald Trump's hair. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many other Daily Show alums on this show, like Samantha B, Jordan Klepper, Larry Wilmore, Louis Black, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Josh Johnson. Yeah. Was it pretty quickly after you moved to New York that you got uh, hired to write on The Tonight Show? Fairly quickly. I did a college tour first. So I moved to New York towards the end of 2015 and did comics to watch and everything. And then the beginning of, I think, 2016 is when I did this college tour that was a few months long. And then I got hired at Tonight Show right after that. What was the process like of getting hired there? 
Uh, you know, I had actually submitted to perform stand-up on the show, and the head writer at the time, this is what I'm told at least, the head writer at the time really liked my set just to perform, like, my five minutes. And so just asked my manager at the time, like, hey, uh, would he want to send in a packet? And so then I uh, did a packet. And didn't hear anything for a few days, maybe even a week. And then I got another hit that was like, can you do another packet? And so I did another <laughs> packet and then um, got brought in for an interview, an interview with like the head writer and producers and maybe even some senior writers because there was like five people in the room. And we just chopped it up like I was just talking um, about random stuff and then left the interview and not knowing, like, do you interview for a comedy job the same way you interview for other jobs? Like, do you <laughs> ask know. about vacation or the hours? That, like, like I didn't I didn't ask them. Or are you trying to be I funny asked, the whole time? <laughs> I wasn't even trying to be like they laughed at some of the stuff I was saying, but I wasn't trying to be funny. And I also wasn't sure because it would have been my first comedy job if I got it. So then I was like. Do I ask about vacation time? Like what, <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? And, you know, they were so great in conversation that all of those concerns sort of fell by the wayside. And then um, I got the call, you know, maybe another week later that I got the job. And then that was that was like a, that was a big change for my writing in general, because I finally with comics, it's very easy for us to just be married to everything that we put together. And that was the first time I knew I was going to write like 125 jokes in a day and that two of them might get on. And then I had to just throw the others away. Like just, they're not going to get used either. Either someone else thought of it, someone else worded it better if they thought of it, or it didn't connect with the host. Or So there's all these reasons why your your jokes have to be like diamonds instead of just like whole landmass. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to own a little bit of like a little patch of, of dirt somewhere, but like ground up to, to its finest core and you get that diamond. And, and that was the first time I really appreciated that in any sense in, in comedy. Yeah. I mean, what was it like all of a sudden you're, you're writing for yourself this whole time and now you come in and you're writing jokes for Jimmy Fallon, who is a you know, totally different persona than you. Was that a hard adjustment to figure out how to do that? It wasn't so, you know, it wasn't as difficult because I think I, I knew this is this is a not a knock on any comedy writer at all because I consider myself a comedy writer. But I would say that one of the things that made it a bit easier for me in the transition was that I knew I was funny from a thing that didn't have anything to do with the show. And I think if I if I got that job, let's say I moved from Louisiana straight to New York, and for whatever reason got a job right into yeah, Tonight had Show. Yeah, ne- had never done stand up, but got hired on the Tonight Show. Yeah, uh, you know, oh, he's funny and he seems to write well. Let's see if he can do a packet. I do a packet. I get the job. Whatever. I think that would have broke me because then <laughs> I didn't have any frame of reference outside of outside of the job if I was funny in that scenario. But then in in how it really went down in real life, I understand what it takes to deliver a joke and have to say a joke. So then I'm also writing jokes that I feel like Jimmy would say. I'm not like, I'm not pimping him out in a sense to like try to say something edgy that maybe I wouldn't say. It's like, I know what it's like to be out there in front of people and do a joke and have it land or have it not land. So I'm going to write 
at least, you know, obviously need to write for a person's voice, but you also need to write in the sense of like what that person would be comfortable saying. And so it, it was it was a difficult thing to learn, but for so many reasons that didn't necessarily have to do with writing for Jimmy's voice. It, it was more writing and getting a bunch of jokes thrown out, realizing everything that I write isn't gold and realizing like you have to come back tomorrow. And the, the beauty of the show is that it's every day. So then you're like, all right, Tuesday wasn't my day, but Wednesday will be. And then Thursday was, and maybe I can do it again on Friday. And so your mindset, you start to build this chain of confidence because then, you know, it can be a chain up. It can be a spiral up or a spiral down. But, you know, I found that like going out and having a great day at work and then going out and having a good set, it's like, oh, I felt untouchable. Um, So you were there for most of 2016, which was obviously an insane year in the country and the news and the politics and everything. Um, And that included this really infamous episode where Donald Trump came on the show. So I was curious if you were there that day and have any memories from from that kind of insane experience of of hosting Donald Trump on the show? Yeah, I so I was there. I might even been sitting not the control room, but I, I was sitting somewhere watching it. But yeah, I feel like my thing with any exp- oh, so okay, the best way I can describe it is any experience like that where on the outside it's like, what would it be like to be a fly on the wall? in the moment that the thing is happening. If you're in the room when the thing is happening, let's say you are that fly on that wall, most things don't feel like these epic moments that they then turn into. Totally. Yeah, no, I I get that, yeah. Yeah, so then you're just sitting watching and you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then like it's in like, you know, it's trending on Twitter the next day or something. Well, so I remember I was watching it and the whole hair ruffling thing was the thing that kind of blew up and became a big deal. Can I mess your hair up? <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being gentle. I'm being gentle. So, as long <laughs> the answer is yes, but the people in New Hampshire, where I'm going to be in about an hour from now, I hope they're going to understand. Okay. <laughs> you say yes? Go ahead. With my hairspray. <laughs> And I remember not being that surprised by it or shocked by it or or didn't I didn't really realize how big of a deal it was going to become because it just didn't seem that out of character for Jimmy to do that. And I think even afterwards he said stuff like, you know, I'm never mean to my guests. I always kind of treat my guests like this. Did you think it was a big deal when you when you saw it or were you surprised that it kind of became a big deal? This is my thing. <laughs> I don't think it can be understated what people thought Trump would do to the country if he won. And so I think that all that energy going into anything that anybody did, like like you have to remember that Kanye got out of whether it was a a rehab or a health facility and just went to Trump Tower and took a picture with Trump and people (laughs) like were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that, you know? And it's like, never mind the fact the dude just got out of the hospital. Like that, that in a, in a sense, that's like also a pretty big thing that just kind of like got overlooked because this is one of the first places he went. But yeah, I guess I just did not see, I, I read plenty of articles that talked about the implications and, and all that stuff. 
And I don't think that it kind of like to what I was saying before, it's like, I don't know if you can always feel what a moment is going to turn into when it happens. And so I definitely didn't feel that way in the room at the time because you also, it's, it's very, especially this is just goes back to comedy again. It's very intoxicating to be around people who feel a certain way. So then when when that is happening, when he's like ruffling his hair or whatever, and the whole audience is losing in their minds laughing, that's another thing that sort of takes away the bite that's going to be added tomorrow when Twitter blows up about it, you know? Yeah, but did you think the backlash was overkill or justified, or, or how did you react to that? I think that I, so I got very bad at this. I've, I've gone in waves. So I think post-special I'm good at again. And way <laughs> back before I really had followers on social, I was good at it. But I don't know if the proportions to any reaction are ever going to be fair. Whether they're positive or negative, it's like, I promise you that album is great. I don't know if it's as great as these random avatars are saying it is. And I promise you this might be a bad person. Who knows if they're as bad as everyone is reacting to them being. So it's like, you know, I was not a fan of Trump in the least. The whole way through the the, the whole way through, I was just kind of like, I, I think I shared a lot of the sentiments that a lot of like, you know, whatever coastal elite liberals have about Trump where I was just like, oh, I don't think he's going to win because I think he's too goofy. And I wasn't, I wasn't seeing how, for whatever reason, in whichever ways he was like touching the pulse of a part of America that was like, nobody thinks about us or, or, or anything. And so for me, I think I was just like, oh, I guess, I guess that's a, that's a response. I don't know. Like fair <laughs> is like fair would imply that I think something should have happened or that I think things were done with intentions that how can I speak to? So I think that like anything, once you're in the public eye that way, like once you're like super, super famous, anything you do is going to get some reaction and then it's going to get a reaction for however long. Like it, it, It's one of those things, it's almost like a virus where it just has to work itself out because it's, it's like all in all, we're talking about like three days of, of backlash and then a couple of what, like a couple months of disdain. And then once Trump won and Colbert took over in the ratings department, it was like, oh, okay, then why even talk about it like he like did did this help him win it's like i mean there's it's a hard, much hard bigger to say, issue yeah. yeah yeah it's like there's a much bigger issue at play if letting fallon play with your hair won a lot of votes that makes you question who's voting and, and how and they why. pick. Yeah, you yeah know? exactly so you eventually you left the show later that year um but then you were able to perform finally stand up on the show the following uh, year in 2017. What are your memories from from that night? And and then after working there for a year, getting to perform stand up on the show and and that must have been pretty crazy. So I I think that the most amazing thing about it and the thing that I'm so thankful for is that it was in a place that felt like home. So it didn't feel like I was in this foreign place guesting on this show, needing to like really bring it. And like, I hope they like me and stuff like that. It's like, I already knew the crew. I already knew, you know, all the, pretty much all the same writers were still there. You know, it, it just felt like home, which was nice. And I got to visit friends who I hadn't seen in a couple months 
And then, you know, I had a great set and I was able to bring uh, my teacher on who was like always very supportive and very adamant that like in a, in a weird way, I think even before I knew I could make comedy a job, definitely way before I knew I could make it a job. Uh, Mr. War was like, I'll see you on the Tonight Show one day, which is like, <laughs> imagine like it's 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 the same as if you let's say you like running and you're a kid and you like running. So I did my high school talent show and that's when he told me and it's like, imagine if you just like running as a kid and then your teacher is like, well, uh, you know, invite me when you play the soup when you play the Super Bowl, when you, you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. team you're on, whatever. It's like. I, you you saw me like you saw me take an interest in a facet of a thing, and you were already like, "All right, but you know, I'm I'm excited to see you live out this like thing that you don't even know is your dream yet." To a to a sense, that's very and surreal. So, yeah, it it really is, and it's like the the fact that that could all come together meant a lot to me, and it was so I'm I'm so glad that we got to do it, and. Um, he even came to my Comedy Central half hour taping like that year, that next year. So now it's me and three of the biggest dudes in the world in one bed. And I knew them, so I knew I didn't want to sleep with them because I knew we all had sleep disorders. I have insomnia. I was up all night. Man that slept right here had sleep apnea. This man died three times that night. Man, the middle is six foot eight, two hundred eight pound black man. This high snored all night, nonstop, whole night, uh. the entire night. <laughs> Terrific. Man at the end right here has night terrors. He's a screamer. I don't know what he's scared of because he's bigger than everything. But he screamed so hard and so loud he woke up people the next hotel room over, but not himself. So all night, all yeah was this dude right here making noises, this dude right here moaning, this dude right here screaming, and me laying horizontal at the bottom of the bed like a dog. <laughs> so all I heard all night, all I heard the entire night was, So then pretty soon after that, you ended up moving over to The Daily Show to be a writer there. How did that happen? So that was, in in a sense, the best way I can describe it is, and the way that I, that I talk about it and I tell people, especially like younger comics and stuff that are just starting out, is that it's like never be too down about the fact that you didn't get something. Because I initially, the way it all came together was I, I from comics to watch, so from like 2015 and on, I'd always had this really great relationship with Comedy Central and the people there. And... You know, was weirdly enough, it was like, you know, almost magical the way I was just meeting more and more people uh, from Comedy Central. And then there was a new show that was going to be on called The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. And so I applied to be a correspondent on that show. And I tested well. And I even got to the point where I was, I, I, whatever the last test is, right? And you come to the you come to the studio and you tape on the teleprompter and all the stuff like that. And um, I did that, and people were very like people were laughing at the stuff that I wrote, especially like you had to do a pre written piece and you had to write your own piece. And you know, people, I, I felt like I was like getting the crowd uh, that was there, the small crowd of um, producers and. I guess people who would potentially be working on the show 
And I had a good enough interaction with them that they pulled me aside later and they were like, you should do a daily show packet. And I ended up not getting the the opposition job, but then I sent the packet in and got an interview for the daily show. And then, um, you know, went in, met with Trevor and some producers and had a, I don't, I don't even know if I can like call it a good interview. It, it was, it was like the Tonight Show thing all over again. I'm like, am I, <laughs> so, like, do I, can I bomb an interview? Like, how do I do this? <laughs> and so then I ended up getting the job. And just ever since that especially has taken, once again, like my stand up, my personal writing, how I think about stories to like this other level where it's like, it's like now with Fallon, I was thinking about jokes a lot because I was on the monologue team. So I really had to think about joke for joke what I was doing. And I think you see some of that in my album that came out. My, um, my first album, I Like You, is like very just joke heavy, very silly and everything. But ever since I've been at Daily Show, I've really like thought more about story, thought more about structure and how you put a piece of work together in a way that's not just digestible, but memorable. Because there are some people who are like very, do even in New York, like Chicago, anywhere you go, I'll take you places where it's like, these people are funny, man. These people are like, you won't, you won't even, you won't remember what it felt like to laugh before because they make you laugh <laughs> so hard. But then you leave and like 20 minutes later, you can't, fully recall the bit like you even want to tell your friends like ah oh, he did this thing and it was so funny and like it kind of went like that but it because they have so much charisma because they have so much presence and because the the structure isn't always there the impression isn't always left and i definitely you know and i'm i'm not dogging on anybody because that's how i was i was like this dude especially early on doing stand up i was this dude that was like making people laugh but people might remember a joke i had sometimes like i was just like all sort of like charisma and fun and and then like Daily Show and working with Trevor really took me to a deeper place. And now it's like I, I like being in that deeper water because if someone does come up to me after a show, I can tell that I've left a deeper impression than I would have if I had not worked there. And if I didn't get to be around these writers and these producers and, and the people who have helped shape the show in a way that's tangential. Like, you know, it's not as if like a producer at the show is pulling me aside to be like, you need to do this, this, and this in your stand-up. It's that, like, I'm like, okay, if this is how you make a compelling show, it must be how you make a compelling piece. And what is stand-up, like we said from the beginning, what is an hour of stand-up except, like, your pinnacle piece for that amount of time, you know? You know, you said you auditioned to be, you know, on screen on The Opposition and then ended up as a writer on The Daily Show. Is there any part of you that sort of wanted to be uh, an on-screen correspondent on The Daily Show? Is that something that you still are interested in doing? I mean, I mean, maybe like potentially, I think that my, my overall drive right now is to be creating as much as possible. And I think that, um, I enjoy writing there so much and have such a good time. And then it, and then there's this time that's like, at least in my mind, if I had to split my mind into like a portfolio of thoughts that can have, you know, this much, this much, this much, uh, breaking into like making music and all this other stuff is like taking up so much more of my thoughts and time than I expected it to that now I'm like I'm open to it but I'm not necessarily like 
gunning for it or something, or it's not like, oh, well, this needs to be the next step or, or, or whatever. It, it's mostly like, look, I'm, I'm having a great time. And the most, the most you can ask out of life is a good life. And I have a good life. You know, and it's like I think about stuff like that sometimes, but I'm also very much into creating whatever I can. Um, and everyone there is like so supportive and everything. I I look at how much, how hard the correspondents work, and to me, sometimes I'm like, hey, I'm glad I am where I am. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that's a lot of extra, you know. Yeah. So we end the show with the first laugh, which is kind of like our speed round. So I'm gonna run through a few of these, and hopefully, you can give us some uh, some quick stories. Uh, what's the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? Um. So in, in, okay, the one that I can really remember is in that Christopher Tye special, Norman Rockwell is Bleeding, where he talks about how his mom, uh, who had struggled with mental health her entire life, and he, and he, it's a really somber moment. It's very like, almost more like a one man show than a special when he talks about it. And he was like talking about how his, his mom committed suicide. She shot herself. And then he hung up the phone and then he immediately picked up the phone and called back. I think his dad is who told him. And he asked his dad, he's like, did she like take anybody with her or anything? And he's like, yeah, that was my <laughs> first thought too. And it's like that thing, because oh, especially dark. with a young mind, I was like so taken with how vulnerable this person was being, how dark this thing was that was happening, that the fact that there was like a joke around the corner just blew me away. That's like, great. I could, like I could, like I was... It, it took me to like another place, yeah. I think. <laughs> the sharp turn. Yeah. What do you remember about your first time actually performing stand-up on stage? So I have two firsts that I, that I kind of think about. I have my first time, which was my high school talent show. And then I have my first real time, which is when I moved to Chicago. I flew to Chicago. And then like, I can't remember if it was that night or the next day. I did my first mic and it was just like, it was great because I had had all these thoughts and feelings bubbling up all these years of wanting to consistently do stand up and just not having anywhere to do it. There's not that many places in, you know, Shreveport or Alexandria, Louisiana to do it. And so then I, I basically had a, had this, uh, I basically had this like, wow, this is really happening. But then I got the light and I was in the middle of a joke and I didn't want to like run the light. Cause I'd always heard like what, what jerks people were that ran the light. But because I just stopped talking, I remember looking like a lunatic <laughs> <laughs> because because I had basically said the premise and then not backed it up in any way possible. And it was like and it was like it was in, it made me look crazy. Like I like I looked insane. Um and so that was my real first time was like I think I did four or five minutes. Three of them went well. And then that last minute and a half, I was just like, should I just keep talking and finish this joke or should I get off? And I was like, well, I want to come here all the time. So like, I don't want to be that guy. So I'm just going to get off. And then I think (laughs) I just, I like, I don't even remember what I said, but it was tantamount to like what OJ did. wasn't that bad, but it's like, (laughs) but then it's, but then I just stopped talking. So then I'm like, oh (laughs) man, yeah. Have a great night. Um, do you remember the first joke that really worked on a crowd that you would tell uh, in your set in those early days? Yeah. So I think I actually, I may have done this joke on Fallon eventually, but I can't remember. But basically it was about how I got I got robbed uh, and like I got mugged and then they punched me in the face. I think I, yeah, it's basically how 
I got so I got punched, and then I was like, the way that my body works is that if you punch my nose, I pee. That like <laughs> that thing was like I don't know what it was, and I was also learning about comedy, so sometimes you don't know why things are working, which is just as terrifying as when they're not working, you don't know why because it's <laughs> like. You know, imagine if imagine if there was a gun and if you pull the trigger on this gun, it just stops the whole conflict and no one gets shot. But you don't know how it works. It's not it's not <laughs> science. It's magic. So you don't know how it works. So now you're like, if I if I pull this trigger, will the last thing that happened happen or will a totally <laughs> different thing happen? I'm terrified. And so that was my first joke where I was like, man, I really got them. And obviously, like, the story keeps going on and it stays funny and stuff like that. But, like, I remember that was my first joke and story where I was like, oh, this almost always works. Got, like, a 99% hit rate. (laughs) Um, Do you remember the first joke that you got uh, on The Tonight Show? That's a good question. I think it was at least the first most memorable one was about, I think I did a Trump timeline. So this definitely wasn't the first joke, but it was the first joke I remember being like, yeah, I did a Trump timeline and it was like a timeline of all of his like achievements and failures. And then it was, uh, him, you know, filing for bankruptcy, like the third time or whatever. And then I went into the future with it. And then I was like, he wins the 2016 election. You know, America files for bankruptcy in 2018. Yeah, prescient. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What about the first joke or bit or something that you got on The Daily Show? The first joke was, I think it was, yeah, so it was when Rex Tillerson was still Trump's, I think, what, Secretary of State or, you know, whatever he was. And I I said, uh, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, and someone who sounds like, it was like, yeah, it's like someone who sounds like a rich lady's dog. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. So uh, it was like, that was the one that I was like, oh, wow. And it was my first day too. So I was just like on cloud nine. Hit the ground running. And then finally, uh, what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard that you've seen? Um, something you want to shout out or a comedian or, or anything that, that really has made you laugh recently? Okay. So is so is there a, like a video portion of this podcast? Like will people there, be able there to can see my be. face? Okay, so <laughs> just the, I, just to give you context, right? So I was in Arizona and I was doing stand-up live in Arizona, the club. And there's a guy that was hosting named Steve Krause. And Steve had this joke. So Steve's in a wheelchair and he had this this joke that was killing me because he basically asked for a mask from the staff and then he since he's in a wheelchair they have to put him in a different wheelchair for him to come out on stage because that one's already stage height and then he came out on stage and you know they already had the mic like height ready and everything and he just grabs his mask and rips it off and is like whatever you do don't take the vaccine and it <laughs> it made me laugh like dude i cried and i told i told him man i was like man that's like oh one of the God. funniest jokes i've heard in months <laughs> and he and he you know has tags and like all this other stuff but he's so funny and he he was killing me i laughed so hard that's a dangerous joke in arizona yeah, yeah. they might believe I him mean, 
Yeah, they some of them might be like, "Yep, yep, you right." But <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> That's not even an Arizona accent. It's just, it's just I come from Louisiana. I don't know what it, I don't know what an Arizona accent sounds like. Yeah, I come from Louisiana where they also don't want to take the vaccine. So <laughs> that just that was like a Freudian slip. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much. This was a uh, this was a lot of fun, and it's uh, great to meet you. And really, I've been enjoying your your comedy. So um, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you. This is so great to talk to you and everything. And, um, is it cool if I, uh, plug real quick? Yeah. Go, go um, plug away. So if you are looking to catch up with me on the socials, which I have a very healthy relationship with now, uh, <laughs> you can find me at Josh Johnson comedy on Instagram at Josh Johnson on Twitter, Josh J comedy on Facebook and Josh Johnson comedy on YouTube. And I also have a podcast, the Josh Johnson show. It's wherever you listen to podcasts. And I talk with my buddy Logan about like, like other stories every episode. So check that out if you have some time yeah we'll put links to all of those in the uh, description for the episode as well so you can check them out there yeah thanks so much thanks josh yeah have a great day you too thanks again to josh johnson for that really honest and insightful conversation i just can't wait to see where he goes from here Right now, though, you can stream his stand-up special hashtag on Paramount Plus and listen to his mixtape Elusive on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your music. Also, check out the Josh Johnson podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade.